0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. I'm Catherine Klein. I'm the Vice Dean for Social Impact at Wharton, and our guest today is Bobby Turner, a leading light in impact investing, the principal and CEO of Turner Impact Capital, and an Evolved Capitalist. Welcome to
1: our show, Bobby. Evolving. Evolving. There's always room for more involvement. Uh,
0: that's good. That's good. Um, so let's start, uh, let's, let's turn the clock back a little bit. Um, 25 years ago, you were a co-founding partner, chairman, CEO of Canyon Capital Realty Advisors. You stayed with the firm for many, many years, but about two years ago, um, founded Turner Impact Capital. So tell us what's different other than assets under management.
1: Well, definitely assets under management. Uh, What's different is the opportunity to spend 100% of my time and energies focused on something that I'm passionate—actually, not passionate, but fanatical about. Mm -hmm. As I tell people, for the vast majority of my career, I was both a capitalist and I was a philanthropist, and I struggled at both. Um, As a capitalist, uh, I was again a partner in one of the world's largest hedge funds for 25 years of my life. I created great wealth, but the sense of accomplishment wasn't paralleled to the amount of wealth that I had created. So I really I struggled at making my change meaningful. Mm -hmm. As a philanthropist I struggled at making meaningful change. I had given millions of dollars away of my, my time and my energy and my money, uh, only really to put Band-Aids uh, on treating some of societal's most daunting challenges. I, I realized in many instances I was, uh, 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 I was, I was treating, not curing. Um, and I was actually creating and funding a legacy of dependency. It was only about 15 years ago with the help of my wife that I actually evolved. I evolved from a capitalist whose sole metric of success was just making money to one that could also superimpose the impact on the larger stakeholder community at large to do what both good and do both well at the same time.
0: So, so what changed and what was your wife's influence?
1: Um, you know, my wife is a very, very good barometer on everything real and authentic. Mm. Um, you know, many years ago, she she, she looked around at the, the, uh, the community and said uh, she wanted to purge a number of relationships we had. Uh, um, and, and I asked why, and she said uh, she didn't think that these families were actually rooting for our success. And I think it takes that kind of wisdom uh, that my wife has to help me oftentimes uh, put my trajectory back on uh, the right course. Uh, It's not always about the destination in life. It's also about the journey. And my wife's a a very good journey woman. Uh, I'm a good destination guy, but she balances me with the importance of the journey.
0: Interesting. So she got you thinking about more about philanthropy and particularly around impact investing.
1: Well, we were always interested in philanthropy. She got me. Um, she recognized my frustration with philanthropy, and, and it was her suggestion. You know, if you could take the the acumen and the prowess that you had as a as a capital investor and apply that your your profit driven mission to the purpose driven mission, uh, you probably could scale and create sustainable solutions to the issues that are so near and dear to you.
0: Yeah. And so you had, as I understand it, you had been a philanthropist giving to. Uh, to grow charter schools. Yeah. And then the light bulb went off and you thought, I can invest in charter school facilities and I will have substantially greater impact through an investment practice.
1: Yeah, well, you know, most people, you know, tend to bask in their glories. I tend to dwell on my failures. And, uh, you know, over a seven-year period as a not-for-profit, I was very actively involved in an organization where, uh, with the help of Bill and Melinda Gates and Eli Broad, we actually built 38 public charter schools in probably some of the most economically challenged neighborhoods of of Los Angeles.
0: Thirty-eight public charter schools? Thirty-eight charter
1: schools. Sounds like big impact. Yeah, 15,000 school seats. Um, and, And candidly, the problem was is for each of those school seats, there was three kids on the wait list. Nearly forty-five thousand kids were on that waitlist, and then I concluded, you know, once again, that what I was doing with the Pacific Charter School Development Corporation, the not-for-profit, is we were treating, mm-hmm. uh, we were trying to address if we were being reactive, and the reality was, and I recognized years ago, if you want to treat philanthropy and government are fine, but if you want to cure, you have to harness market forces to create a sustainable solution. And by the way, Catherine, that means making a profit, and there's nothing wrong. The fact is, is that you can drive better risk-adjusted returns by being purposeful, because the realities are, is we're not speculating on demand. We're just fulfilling the existing demand where the traditional investor in the space has been the government or philanthropy.
0: So you you partnered with Andre Agassi to create the the Turner Agassi uh, Charter Schools Fund. Tell us a little bit about when the light bulb went off to go, you know, and, and the stepping stones to, you know what, there's a better way than
1: philanthropy. So for Andre, it was interesting. I made a cold call to Andre. I like to think of it as a warm call, but I had read his book, and I realized that he and I shared the same passion and frustration for public charter schools. Uh, he, as a philanthropist, had built his own K-12 public charter school, in again, one of the most underserved economically challenged neighborhoods of Las Vegas. Andre was an eighth-grade dropout. He always likes to say that his two most difficult years of high school were eighth grade, uh, but he felt that his responsibility was to give back to those who, while didn't have the athletic capabilities, they had the, the capabilities to succeed if they had the opportunity to complete school. So by the time I had met Andre, he had built his K-12 public charter school called the Andre Agassi College Preparatory Academy. Uh, he had two graduating classes. 100% of those kids had graduated and gone on to college. His frustration was, while he was educating 1,000 kids at a school, there was 3,000 kids on the wait list. So I called Andre And I floated him what he thought was a very novel idea. Let's take our mission-driven organization, let's make it for profit so that we can scale it and create a sustainable solution. His initial response was, was great skepticism. Sure. He, would, he thought that it would be hypocritical of him as a philanthropist to make money off of his philanthropy. But it was very easy to impress upon him the very simple fact that over the prior 15 years, Andre had actually raised $175 million in philanthropy to build and operate his K-12 public charter school. What he had the day that I sat with him to show for that $175 million was one school, 1,000 kids in his school, and no money in the bank. And what I said to Andre, if we were to take the same $175 million and use my business model in one-fifth the time, we could have built 50 schools, 25,000 school seats, returned the capital to our investors with a return on and done it all over again. I think that was the lightning rod that made Andre think he could continue treating the problem with a Band-Aid or basically evolve from philanthropist to social impact investor and join the I'm aid.
0: interested in your turning point. So when you turned from... And the, the the thinking that brought you from I'm getting frustrated with this philanthropy thing and 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 the the philanthropic approach to building charter schools is not going to be as powerful as this for-profit investment fund. How did how did that transition happen even before you called Andre Agassi?
1: I think at some point in my career, my daughter and I had a conversation, very interesting one, where she asked me, "Daddy, what do you want your epitaph to read?"
0: I love that we're hearing about that. The um, women,
1: the important women in your who, life, you know. Absolutely. Um, you know, we men, we're fundamentally insecure and nothing stronger to make a man successful than a powerful uh, and an intelligent woman. Um, she asked me what I wanted my epitaph to read. And I respond to her quite honestly, sweetie, daddy went to the Wharton school. I have no idea what the word epitaph means. <laughs> so when she explained to me, it's what did I want my gravestone to read? Um, a, I thought it was a fairly morbid question, but I, I, I in, in, in indulged her. Um, And I said, well, you know, when I graduated the Wharton School back in 84 with this black belt in how to create wealth, it was very clear to me what I wanted it to read. Mm -hmm. Daddy wanted to have the most change in his pocket when he died. Well, you know, 15, 20 years later in my career, I had created wealth. I had realized that I wasn't happy from the wealth. I would also been a philanthropist and realized that I wasn't happy being a philanthropist. Um, I realized that what I really wanted my, my epitaph to read was not that Daddy had the most change in his pocket, but rather, Daddy made the most change in the world. And I realized that I couldn't do that as a philanthropist. I had enough money to retire at that point in my life, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to retire to become a philanthropist because as a philanthropist, what I probably would have done is just continue to treat problems and create and, susto- and support uh, a legacy dependency. So probably about 15 years ago in my career, I realized that if I really wanted to be happy as a human being and be in balance with my desire to be profitable and purposeful, uh, I had to be, you know, I don't call myself a pioneer, but I was one of the first who had the courage uh, to step back from making money for the sake of making money. I like to joke that for many years as, as, as an investor, I was making money off of other people's misfortunes. At Social Impact, I get to make money off of tackling other people's misfortunes, and that just sits better with me as a human being.
0: Yeah. So you used your expertise, your expertise in real estate development, to... Uh, push forward on a particular brand of impact investing. Uh, and, and you've had great success with the uh, Turner Agassiz Charter Schools Fund. You have a new fund uh, that you're raising money for now.
1: We've raised a second fund. It's you've you've raised the a Turner fund. Multifamily Impact Fund, which is almost a sister fund.
0: Yeah, so tell us about this, because now you're moving to the Multifamily Impact Fund. Well,
1: one has to recognize that the challenges we have in society are daunting, uh, be it healthcare, be it education, be it housing, but also recognize that they're interdependent. Um, You know, as an educator, having built 34,000 school seats, uh, I recognized that we could do great things for a child's life between the hours of eight and five. But if these kids went home to an unsafe, unnurturing home environment, everything we had accomplished had gone out the window. So recognizing that you can't tackle one without uh, tackling all three issues of health care, preventative health care, not acute health care, but preventative health care, access to great quality education and affordable workforce housing, then we really weren't going to re-enrich society. As I said, you know, a you know, number of months ago, I was at a dinner uh, where I was sitting uh, uh, with Larry Summers, um, uh, Richard Branson, Condoleezza Rice, and Chuck Hagel, and the conversation quickly went. A very erudite crowd. Uh, you know, what, were the, what was the biggest challenge facing society? And everyone concluded very quickly that it was the disparity in wealth, that when 1% of society controls 99% of the wealth, that's when you undermine the fabric of a healthy community. Um, I actually don't believe that. I refute that. In fact, the history and the backbone of America has been built on the disparity in wealth. Now, it may be more extreme today than it's been in the past, but we lack today what we have a disparity in is hope. The reality is the 99%, which, by the way, I grew up as the 99%. We always believed in the feasibility of the American dream. With hard work, with education, and a little luck, if you could become the 1%, then you were willing to play nicely in the sandbox. When you take away the hope, when you're growing up in East Baltimore, a single parent with two children, and you know, you don't work one job. You work two or three jobs at minimum wage. You spend 50% of your income on housing at the expense of food security and health security. Your kids are relegated to a public school district where the probability of graduating graduating high schools below 50%, graduating college less than 2%, you have no hope.
0: So, so the Multifamily uh, Impact Fund, building, building workforce housing, how is this going to affect people's lives?
1: So it's a great question. Number one is we're not building workforce housing. Mm. We can't build workforce housing. That's part of my frustration in life. But just because I can't build doesn't mean I can't preserve and enrich and improve. Um, we have 43 million renter households in America. 25 percent, over 10 million families spend over 50 percent of their income on rent. And again, that comes at the expense of food security and health care security and retirement security. And it's untenable. It's almost, it, it's, it's almost criminal to realize that. But you have this huge mismatch in between supply and Demand. You've got 10 plus million families that that can't afford rent. Um, You've got another 4 million families that will come into the marketplace over the next seven years that will be low- and moderate-income families, so you have an existing demand. The demand is growing. No one's building new workforce housing, because economically, you cannot build affordable workforce housing and drive market rate returns. And the worst thing, the most criminal aspect of the housing market, is the existing stock of workforce housing. Current market rate housing that's affordable, or even subsidized housing that comes off its compliance period. When it comes on the market, it disappears. It's getting sold to more opportunistic investors who have a very simple, business model. Buy and improve. Get a return on capital by increasing rents. That comes at the very expense of the very constituencies who we're trying to preserve and enrich for.
0: So they're putting in granite countertops, redoing the whole thing. Caesarstone
1: right. cabinet tops, um, sub-zero refrigerators, beautiful bathroom, bathrooms. And the way they get a return on capital is to increase rents, displacing this very consumer of, again, people that Make too much money to afford subsidized housing. Make too little money for luxury housing or home ownership.
0: So you have a different business model. We do. It's not around around granite and uh, uh, countertops. Describe how this model works.
1: Our business model is similar to a more opportunistic fund in the following sense. I can afford to pay the exact same purchase price. But therein lies where we diverge. The traditional opportunistic investor will buy, improve. Uh, and drive out the consumer, what we do is we buy and enrich. That we can drive the same profitability not by driving rents, but rather by reducing expenses by understanding the stakeholders. Having been in the urban communities now for over 25 years in partnerships with Andre, partnerships with Eva Longoria and Magic Johnson, I understand the three most important issues and challenges that these families have. That's access to great education, it's access to great preventative health care, and a safe, secure, nurturing home environment. If we could create a pride in rentership by enriching these communities with those three services At no cost, you'd actually change the trajectory of your revenue stream. We could actually drive profitability not by increasing rents, but by reducing expenses.
0: So what are the expenses that are reduced for you as a developer if you do those things? Then we'll talk about how you do them, but how does
1: does the – So again, as an owner of workforce housing, Mm -hmm. one would recognize the biggest cost of owning and operating workforce housing is vacancy. There's no pride in rentership. No one comes home after working their two or three minimum wage jobs to their tenement-style home and says, "God, I really love living here." So therefore, there is no pride, there is no affiliation, uh, there is no uh, no loyalty to your landlord. Therefore, what you see is every 24 months in workforce housing, you see 100% vacancy. If you could enrich the community by providing free services, free health care, uh, free education and tutoring, free law enforcement, you could actually change the relationship that you have with that tenant. And if they were to stay longer without paying more rent, just the fact that they stay longer, you can drive profitability, profit margins by 10 to 20 percent by eliminating the vacancy and turnover costs that's associated with rapid turnover. We do that by partnering with our schools. We'll build a great school in a neighborhood where there's affordable housing. What we'll do is we'll subsidize housing for teachers. In return for free housing, which is great for the schools and the teachers, the currency that the teachers will pay us is every school night of every school day, we have some common area that we turn into a a mentoring lounge that one of the five teachers for whom we've subsidized housing, one of those teachers is is staffing uh, that mentoring lounge for the benefit of our children. So while our our parents may be spending too much in rent already, they could ill afford a two but yet, by living in the Turner Multifamily Impact Fund property, they get free tutoring. We do that with healthcare. We do that with law enforcement as well.
0: So you, you've bought two properties, one in Florida, one two th-
1: properties so far, one in Prince George's County, Maryland, and one in Lauderdale Lakes, Florida. We're in contact to buy a third in Austin, Texas right now.
0: So. Tell us about how you make the decision on where to locate. What what made those two properties particularly good places to start?
1: So we like to focus on markets that are defined by the four Ds of urban revitalization. This goes for schools. This goes for health care. This goes for housing, number one. It's got to be a densely populated community. It's got to be a diversely populated community because that's where the mismatch is. Um, There's got to be demand. We're not interested in building charter schools in a high-performing public school district. We're not interested in preserving affordable housing where there's no need for it. So again, density, diversity, and demand, and also disruptive. We're not interested in investing in marketplaces where we can only invest a million dollars or or $10 million. We want to scale where we're building 10 schools, where we're buying 5,000 units of affordable housing so it's sustainable and it's scalable, and more importantly, the holistic approach so we can. And, lift the, and write the listing ship for tens and tens of thousands of families that candidly really don't have great options.
0: So tell us what the success indicators are that you'll be looking for beyond the financial indicators, but the
1: social indicators that tell you that this model is working. Well, first and foremost, I have to focus primarily on my financial Indicators, Because, again, this is not, you know, social impact, how I define it, is not by what it is, but rather by what it's not. Social impact is not philanthropy. It's not government and is not a business model that believes one should sacrifice yields in return for a social metric. For me to raise money to truly scale the impact I want to have, I've got to generate consistent risk-adjusted returns without sacrificing yields. So, number one, every day I go to the battle line making sure I'm making money for my investors. Number two is I'm having an impact, a meaningful impact. on on the communities in which I'm investing. And in many instances, it's easy to define. Obviously, if you're investing in a marketplace where the school districts are are testing at well below state levels, where only one-third of the kids are graduating high school proficient in math and science, or only 50% of the kids are even graduating high school, by bringing into that community a high-performing, established, both academic and financially performing, uh, and and track record school, uh, we know that our our impact is the number of school seats that we build, because the number of school seats that we build we fill with a child, And that many kids were changing the trajectory for their lives. When you build, or not when we build, but when we buy and preserve and enrich workforce housing and the kids that we're teaching during the day in our our schools, actually go home to these communities and they get better sleep, it's a safer environment. We know that we're complementing and creating and tackling the whole solution uh, during the day, live, work and play. Also, by extending the duration of tenancy. When we see that by enriching the communities with healthcare, with education uh, and with security, when we see that the average duration of a lease goes From 24 months to 36 months, we know for a fact that we've proven. When we've seen incidences, the number of incidences, transgressions, uh, 911 calls, when you see them drop from, you know, 75 to 80 a month down to 75 a year, that's when you know you're having an impact on the community and the culture of the community where, again, you're enriching uh, and providing hope and and reinstilling hope into the community.
0: So you've talked about the the risks, uh, as one gets into this space, uh, of arrogance and skepticism, arrogance. On the part of the investors who think they know the solution, skepticism on part of the community. Uh, how have you avoided that in when it goes to work when it comes to
1: workforce housing? It's a great question. I like to say that it's uh, you know the, the biggest risk of being successful in social impact is not recognizing the huge gap between arrogance and distrust. Arrogance by shareholders, the money who believe because we have the money we know what's right for the community, and distrust from the stakeholders who live and breathe these problems every day who assume we're there just to make money. The only way to truly uh, conquer that and bridge that gap is number one by making sure your shareholders are also stakeholders. So when you look at the company we're building, um, not only are we 100% fanatical about what we're doing, we're also 70% diverse. And when I say diverse, it's not only gender and ethnicity and religion, it's also vocation. So in our school fund, we have recovering Teach for America professors. We have recovering public school superintendents. So that we are of the community, we understand the risks. And when we sit across the table from those stakeholders, they recognize that the shareholders are also the stakeholders. I also can help bridge the gap by partnering with someone like an Andre Agassi or an Eva Longoria, who are ambassadors of great Will that can raise the They are truly philanthropists at heart, and by having their good housekeeping seal of approval, that can help, you know, mitigate the concern or the distrust from the community, because Eva and Andre would never partner with a for-profit capital provider whose sole metric of success was a financial return. It has to be, and we're held accountable for the societal-driven return as well.
0: So you've been extremely successful on this journey in finding the social problem and the for-profit solution that go very, very effectively hand in hand, and with a focus on real estate, given your own expertise. As you look out in the world at the you know, incredible number of social issues we face in this country. Are there other social issues where you're looking at them and saying, beyond health care, because I know you're thinking about health f- uh, facilities and, and preventative health care facilities, are there other issues uh, in the world that you look at your, uh, where you're saying, I think there's a for-profit solution here, whether for you or for another
1: person? You know, it's, it's a great question. And, and, you know, for profit, you know, one can drive profits in two ways. One can drive profits by, by increasing revenues. One can also drive profits by reducing expenses. What's interesting to me uh, is the opportunity to figure out how we can tackle some of the most daunting challenges that don't have revenue streams. So there's no way to increase revenues or profits. But if we could reduce uh, expenses a society, as a taxpayer, I'm always very concerned about the government's uh, lack of accountability on the programs that they have. Uh, issues like teenage pregnancy, childhood obesity, recidivism, where there's no necessarily a revenue stream, but we all know that if we invest the capital to keep kids out of prison, we spend three times as much to incarcerate than we do to educate. As a taxpayer, I want to reward any organization that's keeping kids from falling out of prison back into prison. We also know that most of these organizations spend an extraordinary amount of their time raising capital every year. Uh, There's no defined revenue stream. Philanthropy is not reliable. It's not sustainable. And depending upon the socioeconomic or the economic variables, it might be difficult to raise money for any number one of these mission-driven organizations. I'd like to see uh, the social impact bond initiative. I'd like to see it flourish. But right now, a lot of the challenges in that space is those organizations or those ideas are being run by mission-driven organizations. And while their heart and their passion is absolutely spot on to addressing the issue, they've got to recognize that the only way to scale sustainable solutions is also to be held accountable to the shareholders. And that means making money. So until such time as we are going, to flourish or populate the social impact bond market with those who are recovering capitalists as opposed to recovering mission-driven organizations, I think we're going to find some some problems in the space, either in recidivism and or uh, uh, you know preschool education. Uh, I think we're getting there, but I think that people have got to recognize that you've got to bridge the gap between profits and purpose to truly drive the, the best and most superior risk-adjusted returns.
0: Got it. So as a final question, let's take it back to your company, Turner Impact Capital. What's it like to work there? What's the culture
1: like? It's awesome. Uh, You're surrounded by, again, a group of people that are 70% diverse. So I learn every day. But most importantly, we're 170%— 70%
0: diverse means they're not white guys.
1: Uh, It means they're not guys. Mm. Um, It means they're not Americans. It means they're not one religion, uh, not one uh, gender, not one sexual orientation, not one of everything. So that when we sit around a table, we understand the nuances of every stakeholder in America— Um, So I learn every day, but more importantly, I'm surrounded by a bunch of people who have the courage. Listen, the reality is, is most people dream while they're asleep. It's easy for people to dream while they're asleep while they're asleep. It's those that have the courage to dream while they're awake that will change the world. And we have populated Turner Impact with a group of people, recovering professionals from all aspects of life, who have a shared courage to dream while they're awake and not take no for an answer. So I don't go to work any longer. I go to play every day of my life.
0: That's fabulous. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having great me today. I appreciate, it. I appreciate it. Great. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.